We are in the book of Acts, and we're in chapter 11, and we got through verse 18 last time, and the vignette immediately before that is Peter's report back to the church in Jerusalem about the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles, and the fact that he entered a Gentile's house, and in that process he explains the vision that he had of the sheet that comes down from heaven. And we had a lively discussion about that on Shabbat. Basically what it is is that the whole vignette is in the context of food. So it starts off with Peter's hungry and he's looking for lunch. Then he has this vision and he's told to rise, kill and eat. And he says, nope, I don't eat non-clean foods. And the spirit says, what I have called holy, you don't make common. Then he goes from there to Cornelius's house, who is a Gentile, and he has to have the urging of the Spirit to get him to go into Cornelius's house. In other words, the only reason he goes into Cornelius's house is because the Spirit tells him to. It's okay. Of course, while he's there, the Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and that just freaks everybody out because nobody expected that. And that's the thing that finally teaches Peter what the vision means. Peter, when he gets the vision, doesn't understand it. He's being told in a vision, we've got all these unclean animals, go ahead and eat some. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he doesn't understand until after the Gentiles get the Spirit. That's when he understands that the thing that one eats is not what defiles one. It's not what goes into your mouth, it's what comes out of your mouth. And the fact is that Gentiles who have bacon breath can be part of the kingdom of God. And that's Peter's understanding. Now, for those of you who hang around rabid Christians very much, a lot of them will take that vignette to mean that we can now eat anything we want to, and they will couple that with the passage that says Yeshua made all foods clean. They will take those two together to mean that the dietary laws are done away with, and none of that is correct. So there's sort of two things. For those who follow the dietary laws, the dietary laws are not done away with. And the fact that Yeshua declared all foods clean, you have to go back to what God's definition of food is. And back in the Torah, he says, this shall be food for you. And he describes clean animals. And all the rest of that stuff is not food for you. So first thing is he made all foods clean. And that's, again, in the context of the things that you eat don't defile you. It's the stuff that comes out of your mouth. So Gentiles who do not follow the dietary laws do not need to be commanded to do so, and that's because of Peter's vision, where God says, you don't call unclean or common the thing that I have made holy, and the Spirit falls on the Gentiles. In fact, Peter made a report to the church in Jerusalem and got raked over the coals for going into a Gentile's house and eating, and that's when he explains his vision. We're going to have the Council of Jerusalem in four or five chapters here, and they're going to duke it out. And you're going to have 
Paul and Peter on one side, and you're going to have what is known as the circumcision party on the other side. And the question becomes, for Gentiles coming into the church, do they have to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses? And the decision is, no, they don't. So that decision is being set up by the vignette with Peter and the magic sheet. So this whole thing is the Holy Spirit is doing things that the Jews are not expecting to have done. And it's not that there's different rules for Gentiles and Jews. It's that Jews and Gentiles have different roles. And I am firmly convinced that the diet that is specified for Hebrews has to do with the role of Hebrews, which is to be a nation of priests, if you will. So with all that said, now let's go into Acts 11:19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Now we got a time shift here. Okay, we had the vignette with Peter and he goes back and he reports. Now this is, in the meantime, you have these people that got scattered because of the persecution of Stephen, which happened a while back. So the people who have been scattered here have not heard about Cornelius and have not heard from Peter or anything like that. They just know that they got run out of town at the stoning of Stephen. And so they're, now they're going out and their attitude is, this is for the Jews. And so we're talking to the Jews. But again, understand that there's a time shift. We know all back at the ranch, or you know, however you want to describe it. That's what's going on here. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who, on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Yeshua. Now, the Hellenists we've described before, these are Jews who are Greek speakers. And what we would call them today is secular Jews members of the Jewish tribe, but they don't follow any of the commandments, they don't speak Hebrew or any of that kind of stuff. But their name is still Finkelstein. So genetically they're Jews, but culturally they're not really. 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch remember Barnabas showed up a couple of times back. He's going to be the one that goes and brings Paul into ministry here in just a minute. And of course his name means son of encouragement. So Barnabas is, I think, if you will, the church's fixer. Not in a mafioso sense, but in the sense that when we got something going on, we need to send somebody who is diplomatic, tactful, encouraging, and also full of the Holy Spirit. So Barnabas sort of fits that role and he he plays that a number of times. He is going to be the one who redeems Mark because later on in the book, Paul and Mark head off on a trip together and Paul finally just gets fed up with Mark and sends him home. I can't do anything with this guy. He's in my way. I don't need him. Get him out of here. Sends him home. Barnabas is the guy that then takes Mark and tutors him and mentors him and 
brings him up so that he becomes somebody worthy, if you will. But Paul is a Benjaminite. Paul's got a temper. Paul is very short. You can read it in his letters. I mean, he's starchy. And so this kid is not towing up to Paul's standards, so he just shifts him out of there. Barnabas picks him up and rehabilitates him. So Barnabas sort of comes in and out of the story, always in a role where he is bringing somebody into ministry, encouraging someone, helping someone, that kind of thing. I mean, that's his ministry. Very valuable, obviously. Verse 23, when he, Barnabas, came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Again, he's an exhorter. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. I am speculating now. Paul got knocked off his ass on the way to Damascus and got full of the Holy Spirit and all that kind of stuff, and then Paul disappears. He goes to Jerusalem for a while, and people are really suspicious of him, but then they draw him in, and then he heads off to Tarsus. Don't really know why. I don't know Barnabas's educational pedigree, but I do know Paul's educational pedigree. Paul knows Scripture. He knows Torah. He studied under Gamaliel. He was a rising star in the temple system. So Paul knows his onions when it comes to scripture and all that kind of stuff. So my speculation is that Barnabas, the encourager, sent for a specialist in scripture so that these new believers could be taught properly. Barnabas's role as encourager and bringing them in and all that kind of stuff, community builder, great guy for that, but his gifting may not be teaching, and that's Paul. So what he does is he goes and grabs Paul and brings him back because we need somebody who can teach these folks, and you're better at that than I am. That's speculation. The scripture does not say that, but given their personalities and their talents, I think it makes sense. Down to verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. One of the things that Paul does later on is he will collect gifts from the churches that he establishes to send back to support the people in Israel. And so that process has begun here. Chapter 12. About that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. So we are now at least a year out from the crucifixion because the crucifixion happened during unleavened bread. We may be more than that, but minimum of a year out. 
and I am sort of speculating here, and I suspect it may be exactly a year. And that's because we're talking about the ones who got scattered and what they were doing and so forth. And with no scriptural basis behind it, it feels like to me that this is fairly soon after the crucifixion. Picking it up at chapter 12 again. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John not James, the brother of Yeshua, who wrote the Gospel of James, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, and here we're talking about the temple establishment, which would be the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin and so forth. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, so we are at least a year out from the crucifixion. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayers for him were made to God by the church. So this is the second second or third time Peter's been in prison. Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and centuries before the door were guarding the prison. Verse 7. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought that he was seeing a vision. So at this point, he thinks he's having a dream or a vision, doesn't understand that anything's going on. And again, I sort of think of this angel, like a squad leader going through a barracks and kicking bunks and saying, get up! (laughs) When it says it struck Peter in the side, that's sort of what I envision. Verse 10. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. So, John Mark. So, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. You sort of get the impression that Rhoda is sort of a stereotypical airhead, probably doing Rhoda a grave disservice, but she does not come off well in this vignette. Verse 15, they said to her, you're out of your mind. And I'm sort of guessing that that maybe something has been said to her before. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. 
Then he departed and went to another place. So this particular James is the brother of Yeshua, who is the president of the synagogue, who will be presiding over the council. Two different Jameses in one chapter here. And, of course, at that time, Peter, he gets out of town. He really doesn't want to have God have to get him out again. Verse 18. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for them and did not find them, he examined the sentries and ordered that they be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So what you're doing here is you're setting up the fact that these centuries got put to death when Paul and Silas are in prison and you have the earthquake and the immediate reaction of the guard as he's about to fall on his sword figuring falling on the sword is going to be a whole lot more pleasant than being questioned about what happened to the prisoners under torture and then once they have decided that I have lost these prisoners, then they're going to kill me anyway. So what I'll just do is skip the questioning, which is to say I'll skip the torture and just go straight to the final act. And so Paul then calls out to him and says, you don't have to do that. We're still here. We're not going to go anywhere. And I'm suggesting that this particular vignette with Peter sets up the one with Paul and Silas so you understand what the stakes are. Verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. So Tyre and Sidon are on the Mediterranean coast, north of Israel. Herod's tetrarchy is the area that used to be the northern kingdom. It's agricultural country. You've got the Valley of Esdraelon or the Jezreel Valley, which is wheat country. You've got the plain uh, south of Megiddo. So lots of agriculture in Israel. And apparently the Sidonians and the Tyrenes depend on Israel for their food. And since Herod is ticked with them, they want to get back into his good graces so that he resumes exports. So I'm all the way down to 21. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god, not of a man. In other words, this is rank flattery. So he's sitting on his throne, and he's pontificating. And the voice of a god, not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So this is apparently a very dramatic and messy death. Something worthy of a grade B slasher. 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. So returned where? To Antioch. Chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaon, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. 
Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So this is the dispatch of Paul on his first missionary trip. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul to hear the word of God. So they've gone from the northeast corner of Cyprus down to the southwest, and they wind up at Paphos, and there you have a Roman proconsul by the name of Sergius Paulus, and he is a man of intelligence, and he hears about these three guys. You have Saul, Barnabas, and John Mark, and he wants to hear what they've got to say. He has got a court magician, again, very much in the same spirit as Pharaoh's magicians. It was fairly standard in secular governments for the king to have a court magician, wise man, astrologer, somebody who could be in contact with the supernatural on behalf of the state. So I'm assuming that this guy, Bar Jesus, is such a one. And by the way, I'm pronouncing him Bar Jesus, not Bar Yeshua, because this is Greek and his name may in fact have been pronounced Bar Jesus as opposed to Yeshua. So Sergius hauls Barnabas and Paul in there because he wants to hear the word of God. But Elamus, which is the magician, this Bar Jesus, but Elamus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, Elamus means wise man, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So if this guy is the court connection to the supernatural, the last thing he wants is competition in the spiritual realm. So what he's going to try and do is protect his own turf. The scripture calls this guy a false prophet. So he is not in fact the real deal, but he's being paid as if he were. Verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, first thing is, if I were a cynic, which I'm not, Paul, having been blinded himself, turns to the only thing he knows and turns around and blinds this guy. Work once, it'll work again. It's sort of Paul's experience with this kind of stuff. He figures if it worked on me, it'll work on this guy. One of the things that we've said is that signs and wonders 
are not themselves sufficient evidence of the power of God. We know, for example, from Revelation, that the Antichrist will be able to do signs and wonders to the extent that will fool the elect. So the fact that somebody can strike folks blind and call fire down from heaven and all of those kinds of things is not itself sufficient reason to believe that person. Get your attention. And once he has your attention, if he then speaks the word of God, then he's for real. If, however, he leads you to follow somebody else, the Torah says you shall not fear such a one. So that's sort of thing one. Thing two is this Roman proconsul doesn't have that particular bit of teaching. So from the Roman proconsul's point of view, wow, this guy has got a genuine, for real, spiritual connection. I'll listen to him. He out-magicianed my magician. He took my magician and tied him in knots. So this guy must be the real deal. So that sort of thing too. But then thing three is kind of interesting. I'm down to verse 12 again. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred or because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, the way I read that is Paul's blinding his magician got his attention. But the thing that convinced him was the word of God. I'm reading it that way. He's sort of primed because he's asked Paul and Barnabas to show up. So he's curious, he's interested, he's intending to give this a fair hearing. So what the blinding of the magician does is get the interference out of the way. So you've got your staff magician who is a Jew and theoretically knows something about scripture. Now, let me give you an example. Let's suppose that Tom is a good Mormon and I'm a good messianic and we go to witness to somebody and I start talking about the Torah and Yeshua and Tom who knows scripture is no that's not what that means no that's not what that means no that's not right and so what he's doing is he is interfering with what I want to do using scripture improperly so this Jew who is the magician is in a position to do that and he is of a temperament to do that because he wants to protect his place on the staff so when Paul and Barnabas start teaching about Yeshua this guy is in a position from scripture to say no that's not what I mean I mean you know we argue with the Jews all the time about what Isaiah 53 means so to have somebody who's somewhat knowledgeable cross-talking what you're trying to do would serve to confuse the proconsul. So blinding this guy and sending him off walking down walls in search of a restroom is by way of getting the interference out of the way and it doesn't hurt that it has also got the proconsul's attention. Onward. 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. Now notice Paul name is changing. His name changed in the last paragraph. Up until the incident with the proconsul, he was always known as Saul. Now he's Paul. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
So this is where John Mark gets separated and sent home. 14. But they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now there's two Antiochs. There's one in Syria and there's one in what's now modern day Turkey. This is the one in Turkey. But they went from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said. Now, a couple of things. As far as I know, every time Paul goes to a new city, he starts in the synagogue. He doesn't start going from house to house and preaching in the streets or any of that kind of stuff. He always goes to the synagogue first. And it's only when he gets himself in trouble in the synagogue that he then turns to the Gentiles in the area. So 16 again. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. So you've got two, two groups here. You've got Jews, men of Israel. You've also got God-fearers and proselytes. And this, it is particularly important in this vignette, but it's one of the things that you need to keep in mind as you're reading Paul's letters, especially to the Romans. Because in every synagogue, you have got several audiences that he's writing to. So in Romans, he'll write to Jews, who are the non-Messianics. He'll write to Messianic Jews. He'll write to Gentiles. And he'll write to proselytes. And those are four distinct groups of people, all in the same synagogue. And so as he's writing, for example, in Romans, you need to figure out who he's talking to in each part of the book of Romans. It's really clear in Romans, but this starts here because you have men of Israel and you who fear God. That is not to say men of Israel who fear God. If you're not paying attention, you can say men of Israel, comma, you who fear God. Same group. That's not what's being said here. So, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. <laughs> Paul's a bit starchy. So, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Ishai, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, this man, David, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Yeshua, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. 
So remember Yeshua when he's duking it out with the Pharisees, when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, how then does David call him Lord? So he's setting up that same kind of a conundrum for them. 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. What he's saying is, those in Jerusalem and their rulers did not understand the words of the prophets, even though the words of the prophets are read every Shabbat. And because they did not understand the words of the prophets, they fulfilled the words of the prophets by killing Yeshua. That's what all that says. 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Yeshua, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give to you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. He's going back to the psalm, which is the promise of resurrection from the dead. And then 36. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. So this is going back to the Psalms and saying, okay, what is going to come who will not see corruption? That Psalm cannot be speaking of David because David saw corruption. David's body rotted and his tomb is there and you know, his bones are buried in Jerusalem and everybody can go visit anytime they want. So this Psalm 1610, which is written by David, is not talking about David, is what he's saying. 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you stoppers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So the idea is, I'm telling you of the works of the Messiah. I'm telling you he was raised from the dead. I'm telling you this is all according to the scripture. Therefore, do not be a scoffer, because the scripture says that a scoffer will not believe even if one explains it to him. Let me finish this Sabbath, and then we'll break it there. So verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they come from out of town, sort of like next month. We're going to have a speaker from Jerusalem. So the idea of having somebody travel in from Jerusalem or the home office, if you will, 
be given an opportunity to speak is absolutely perfectly normal. So Paul and Barnabas are traveling evangelists. They show up in the synagogue and I say, you guys got something to say to us. And in that process, they are so persuasive that they draw a crowd after church and are invited to speak again the next Shabbat. But they're invited to speak not by the leadership of the synagogue. They are invited to speak by the people of the synagogue, and that's going to cause a problem. So let's leave it off there, and we'll pick it up next week.